Paramedic Insight podcast from the College of Paramedics. Data analysis and important topics from around the world of paramedic practice from the College of Paramedics. Hello and welcome to the College of Paramedics podcast. Um, I am uh, Benjamin Watts, a critical care paramedic at the Thames Valley Air Ambulance, and today we are going to be looking at non-technical skills and particularly the way that that is going to uh, affect and um, help or hinder our current response to the COVID. Uh, pandemic. Um, I'm joined today by uh, Roger Alcock. Roger. Hi Ben. Uh, Yes my name's Roger Alcock and I am a consultant in emergency medicine and paediatric emergency medicine but I also have a strong interest in um, non-technical skills and in simulation training and as part of my career I've been doing progressively more humanitarian uh, work overseas, uh, and that's included responding to the Ebola crisis in West Africa in November 2014. Um, I responded to that, but then subsequently became unwell and experienced the fantastic care that I received from both the pre-hospital and hospital elements of the uh, NHS back in Scotland. And I think I therefore have an interesting perspective, I guess, from seeing it both from being a clinician and a professional, uh, but also seeing it from the other side uh, as a patient. Thank you so much for joining us, Roger. Um, We are going to delve a little bit deeper into um, what non-technical skills are. So to to you, what what do you feel like non-technical skills covers? Well, it covers quite a wide uh, variety of elements, but I guess in broad terms, it breaks down to uh, task management, team working, decision making, situational awareness, and stress management being the main uh, non-technical themes, if you like. That's really helpful. So, at the moment in our in our current situation of of being kind of in the the ramping up stage of a potential uh, pandemic event within the UK, so we've got increasing number of cases and increasing number of uh, deaths coming from uh, COVID nineteen. Um, we all within the healthcare system are seeing um, an increased number of respiratory patients, and we're having to wear a lot of. Uh, infection prevention control uh, PPE and uh, because of that um, these non-technical skills the the situation awareness your communication your leadership your team working they're all going to be challenged a little bit more uh, by um, the 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 equipment that we are using and the the protection that we're wearing Um, so why do these non-technical skills matter Well, I suppose the clinical bottom line, Ben, is that the non-technical skills matter because ultimately by doing and being aware of your non-technical skills and challenges, uh, you can provide better patient care. 
And at the end of the day, that's what we're all here for, to provide clinically excellent patient care despite being in challenging situations. And I think um, for the audience and the pre-hospital teams out there, uh, this is something that they're used to doing on a daily basis. And really, it's just adapting normal practice to the abnormal situation um, as much as possible, minimizing the number of changes to normal practice, but maximizing the effectiveness of practice in what is going to be a very challenging situation, both in hospital and pre-hospital. I think you've you've hit the nail on the head. It's it's about that adaptation, isn't it, into to your normal practice, but and and maintaining that kind of standard and that level of excellence that we we've come to expect and we we come to um, want to deliver. Yeah, um, absolutely. It, if if you wouldn't mind, I'd, I'd be really interested to delve a little bit deeper into your experience of working during the um, Ebola crisis in West Africa. Um, yeah, and if you could just explain. What, what your role was there uh, and what kind of precautions you, you needed to take? Sure. So I volunteer with the UK Emergency Medical Team, which is the official British government response to humanitarian medical disasters overseas. And back in 2014, uh, the British government decided to respond to the Ebola crisis in West Africa. And part of that response was providing clinicians who were able to go across and support, in the British case, predominantly Sierra Leone colleagues, to deliver the best possible care to the population that was suffering from <clears throat> Ebola in West Africa. So my job was, I was in the first wave of NHS volunteers. We went out in November, having trained with the <clears throat> British military um, in Strensel in York. So we were put through their, their hospital trainer. We had some fantastic training there, uh, which included a real focus on infection prevention and control, and also on PPE usage. But also, and I think equally important, the social cultural element as well. So recognizing the impact of your practice on the cultures that you're going into. Uh, once we'd done that, we deployed to Sierra Leone and were supporting a number of charities and other organizations providing care in Ebola treatment centers. And my particular role was to work to help to develop an Ebola treatment centre in Port Loco, which is in the north of Sierra Leone, and then to provide care for patients with Ebola and suspected Ebola um, in uh, November and December of 2014. Thank you. So the the response from the UK team and that, that pre-training that you had up at Strensum, um I presume that that then made your life a lot simpler in terms of having had that pre-training and that um, that kind of initial practicing of doing things well in challenging circumstances. Did you find that that training then uh, transcribed across nicely to, to what you were doing or were there challenges that you, you had to overcome in country? Yeah, so did the was the training effective 
totally. It was absolutely superb. I would um, point out that the people there were civilians who were uh, utilising the benefits of the British military's training facilities and skills. And uh, really, it was it was fantastic. It was extremely helpful. And not just from the PPE side of things as well. So I remember particularly, we had a very, very good talk from an army chaplain. And one of the things that he said was that you need to clear your personal plate. Because until you've cleared your personal plate, you can't focus on your professional plate and you can get overloaded. And um, so for me, what that translated to was coming home from the, or basically being at the training and making a decision that the building work that I was doing around my house had to stop immediately. Um, And that I needed to sort out some key things with my family um, so that I could square that all away and then focus on my professional job and my professional role. Um, In terms of the training and the challenges of translating it in the Sierra Leonean context, I guess one of the the big things actually, and uh, it's actually proven to be something that people are talking about a lot with regard to COVID-19 is the PPE and the fact that we were trained with a particular type of headgear, which subsequently was not what we were using in Sierra Leone. We were using a different form of uh, head protection. Now, it sounds relatively minor, but at the time, when you're, I guess, effectively putting your life on the line to a certain extent, um, the importance of PPE really is uh, becomes to the forefront in your in your in your mind and in your conversations and you know how you interact with team members and so on. And I do remember the fact that we changed from the the PPE we were trained with to using slightly different uh, head protection, effectively. Um, created quite a lot of mental mental load um, and uh, I, I see that now actually with regard to the PPE use and the discussions that are going on at the moment with regard to the levels of PPE that are used um, with regard to the current pandemic and uh, COVID-19. Um, I think that there are some important points to bear in mind and the key one is to actually get the basics right because what I've observed is that I frequently see colleagues and uh, other people wearing PPE and then completely negating the benefit of any PPE by their behavior. So for example, somebody wearing gloves then proceeds to touch their face and their eyes and uh, mucous membranes in particular without actually cleaning their hands. So actually achieving no benefit at all to wearing the gloves, really. Um, So I think there's a danger that people can focus on the PPE without actually getting the basics right of washing hands properly and not touching your face. It's two really simple messages, but you can have all the PPE in the world And if you're not doing those two basic things correctly, you're putting yourself, your colleagues, your family and the community at risk. I think that's really key. And, you know, within the UK ambulance services, within the the UK hospital system, the NHS, um, we traditionally we we haven't had to um, 
work for prolonged periods of time in PPE. Um, you know, ambulances are used to, or paramedics, um, ambulance personnel are, are used to washing their hands as often as they can in hospital or when they get the opportunity out of hospital um, using alcohol gel. But obviously that is being ramped up and that's being expected, you know, from everyone within your day-to-day -day life, whether you're a healthcare worker or not, is to be increasing those essential basic skills of, of hand washing, mm -hmm. minimising face touching. Um, I can imagine that whilst you were responding to the Ebola crisis, that that was also something that was at the forefront of your mind. Now, um, I seem to remember um, from your talk that you you used a buddy system um, when you uh, were utilising the PPE. So when you were going into the hot zone, yeah. um, would you mind kind of explaining just how that worked? Yeah, so the, the buddy system is really important, really. So what you're doing is that you are checking, it's essentially peer checking of your PPE. And the benefit to that is that, you know, what can happen is that you can try to cut corners. Perhaps you've not noticed that you've got a gap between your glove and the a suit, for example, or that you have not actually sealed your zipper properly when it comes to the full suits that are covering up towards your face, your body, and then up towards your face. Um, it might be that you have a gap around your goggles. Um, it, may, it might be actually that there's a tear in your PPE, which you hadn't been aware of. So um, the donning is extremely important from the point of view of having an appropriate buddy to uh, check you over. And I think the other thing as well is that uh, when you actually go into the the, the hot zone or the, the red zone, uh, your buddy and you need to be constantly watching one another to make sure that you are not inadvertently putting yourself at risk. So for example, say you're working with children, the natural thing to do with a child is to you know, to, uh, you know, pick them up and, and, and reassure them and so on. But you have to be very careful that they are not then um, pulling your PPE off, for example, and displacing it and then putting you, um, putting you at risk. Um, so the, the buddy system uh, is important both in the donning situation and also the actual red zone uh, working. But then actually, when it comes to doffing at the other end, the doffing is actually one of the higher risk activities. In other words, you're taking off your PPE. And so it's important that you've got somebody that can uh, go through a checklist and making sure that you are taking the PPE off in the correct order and that you are cleaning your hands appropriately as you take off the PPE. Um, and actually, in Sierra Leone, um, the, there was a number of local people that were trained up to do that and they make a huge difference because when you're coming out of the, the red zone inevitably you're hot you're tired you might be needing the loo you're hungry and quite frankly all you want to do is just get out of the PPE and you know get a drink because you're feeling quite dehydrated and you've really really got to just consciously slow your actions and behaviors down so that you take some deep breaths just take your time 
and you need to plan to take your PPE off. So it's not a question of staying in the red zone as long as you can. You have to stay in the red zone as uh, what is a reasonable length of time, allowing sufficient time to then take your PPE off at the other end. So it's really about thinking about your whole um you know, your whole system, if you like, You're, you should be thinking in advance about your, you know, Maslow's hierarchy. Have you been to the loo? Are you too tired? Have you had something to eat? Um, have you cleared your personal plate before you're even thinking of stepping into the, the red zone, wherever that red zone is, whether that's, you know, in a hospital environment or indeed in a pre-hospital environment? I think um, for the for a lot of paramedics and ambulance personnel working on the road, you know, the, this level of PPE and the, the relentless kind of um, uh, donning and doffing. And it, I think a, a lot of ambulance services, thankfully, have have created checklists and have yeah. kind of um, suggested this buddy system that sounded like it worked really well in, in the Ebola crisis. And hopefully that can can move across into our current practice. Mm-hmm. Um the you know that deliberate action when you're under stress and taking that time to have a little pause and just think am I doing everything right I think it's so important that we are adopting that into our practice at the moment um with the the wearing of PPE and the the use of um PPE during the Ebola crisis what were some of the challenges that you faced Roger? So wearing the PPE during the Ebola crisis, um, well, one of the challenges was uh, working with children and um, actually generally with the whole population when you look very, very different. So, for example, with children, um, you know, if you think about it, you actually look a bit like an alien Um, and you look potentially extremely threatening, remembering that your communication is largely non-verbal and most of that non-verbal communication goes through your face, suddenly you're not able to do any of that. And you have to recognize that that is going to be an issue and take steps to address that. So, for example, one of the things that we did was for the, when we're going in to deal with the children, we'd have, we'd draw characters on our uh, PPE to um, provide a bit of reassurance and light relief for them. now, uh, you know, you might say, well, that's uh, that's a bit unnecessary, but actually, you know, you've got to try and break down the barriers with them. One of the other things that I did was, and I distinctly remember this, is um, actually when I was looking after a little boy, about 20 months old, and I was trying to give him fluid um, and getting him to drink and also push some IVs uh, fluid into him, and I, and I just started to sing to him. Um, you've really got to think creatively about how you break down the barriers of communication between you, the professional behind the PPE, and what is often a very frightened person on the other side. And that equally translates to working in the UK context pre-hospitally with the COVID-19 side of things. And I think that's particularly the case when you remember that um what is happening progressively is that visiting is being restricted or indeed stopped for people uh, going into hospital. And so you need to recognize that when you are pre-hospital and you are picking up these unwell people, it might be the last time they see their families and friends, particularly their family. And so you've really got to acknowledge that and you've got to facilitate the family 
understanding that, communicating that in a sensitive way, and just allowing them to have a couple of minutes and just thinking behind your mask, just thinking what matters to them. Because you can bet your bottom dollar it's not a response time. Yeah. I, I think I think that's so important. The the human connection and building those channels of communication with with families and and you know allowing them that that humanity that you would want for your family. Yeah, um, totally. It's it's so important, and it and it could so easily be be lost in the melee of donning and doffing PPE and you know rushing to try and. Um, you know, move on because you know that the pressure levels are so high. But mm. but you've got to remember that that absolutely fundamental um you know need for families to to have those moments with their loved ones. You know, everyone on the road is potentially feeling some level of fear, whether that be the patients, whether that be the family, or whether that be the crew. You know, it's it's all new and unknown, um, particularly to what is a relatively young population of of paramedics. We've got a lot of newly qualified paramedics and newly qualified emergency care assistants that are coming into the the ambulance service. Um, and for them the the pressure is going to feel very um very heavy upon their shoulders um, and they're not necessarily going to be used to having those difficult conversations with families um, particularly not whilst wearing PPE and like you said looking like an alien or something out of Predator or Star Wars or something yeah. you know, we we are going to have to 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 make sure that we are keeping that level of humanity um, during the uh, Ebola crisis um, how did you find the communication uh, between yourself and colleagues differed um, compared to your, your normal kind of working practice? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually, Ben. Um, one of the things that we really instituted there is, I mean, clearly the communication is difficult. You cannot hear things properly. You cannot lip read. Um, you cannot see people's nonverbal communication as we've mentioned so the communication is really key so there are a number of steps that we took to facilitate that and enhance the communication and get around those barriers the first thing is that you need to plan before you go into the hot zone what you are aiming to achieve and who is going to do the tasks that will allow you to achieve that outcome so for example you're going in there you're aiming to give oxygen, put a mask on the patient, put a line into the patient, give some fluids. You need to be clear before you go in who is going to do what and how they're going to achieve it. And you really need to at least mentally rehearse and ideally simulate how you will achieve that. The second thing is that you need to think about really simplifying the communication that you have between team members when they're wearing PPE. So as an example of that, in the red zone in Sierra Leone, um, rather than give people a complicated series of observations, which were only going to be relevant for a couple of minutes um, and were difficult to communicate from one side, in the red zone across to the, um, the amber zone, uh, the... the um, hot zone to the to the warm zone if you like so across the fence 
what we would do is we would just communicate a number, and that number related to a pre-agreed series of five levels of patient dependency. So that ranged from a patient who is ambulant and self-caring to somebody who is bed-bound and palliative. And literally, uh, the communication was that simple. It was a number. And so I think simplifying your communication, saying less, achieving more is a really important element to getting around that communication barrier. Absolutely. And I think one of the things you said there about, you know, having that little brief before you go in, um, that is something that's so achievable for our UK ambulance services, you know, whilst they're driving to a to a job or even at the beginning of their shift, just kind of having those predefined roles and conversations and having you know ways of communicating so knowing that if you're putting your hand up it's because you need everyone else to be quiet things like that that are you know small easy steps um you know taking the time to to write your name on the front and back of your your tyvek suit and what your role is so that when other team members potentially come in um they know who they're talking to and who they're looking at um so you obviously have the very unique experience of having been treated um, in full by by patients, uh, sorry, by healthcare professionals in full PPE. Um, would you mind just telling us a little bit about that experience, Roger? Um, yes. Well, I mean, as I said, uh, the experience I had was that uh, I didn't actually ultimately have Ebola, but the situation was that I'd come back from looking after patients with Ebola. And I developed a fever, um, I think it was day six after returning. And um, I did what uh, many healthcare professionals would do at the time. I took my temperature, it was raised. So I obviously was at home isolated and I thought, right, I'll wait for half an hour. I'm sure it will come down again, but uh, it didn't. And it went up to more than 39 degrees. And so I did what I had to do. I called the relevant people. And uh, I was waiting for the ambulance to arrive to take me um, away from where I live. And uh, it took quite a while, actually, because uh, in Scotland we have the the SORT team, which is a specialised response team, a bit like Heart down in England. Um, And uh, they obviously had a, you know, they've got a, a certain resource which they have to use. So it took a while to come. Um, But during that time, I had regular updates from the ambulance service themselves, which was appreciated, and also from a clinician in the hospital where I was going to be going. Um, When the ambulance arrived, it was an interesting uh, experience because I got myself organized. I had an overnight bag and so on. And uh, the police had sealed the street off. And uh, I went out because I wondered where the ambulance was. And um, literally, I appeared from my door and the paramedic said, uh, I heard him shout out, there he is, get back inside, get back inside, (laughs) (laughs) which was a little bit intimidating, actually. Um, Now, I'm sure he didn't mean to come across as intimidating like that, but um, it did have that effect, even as somebody who was very familiar with the concept and what was going to happen. Um, uh, I was provided, I was told to, to strip naked, um, back in my home by this paramedic and to put on a Tylex suit 
the um, full body suits. And then I was taken out to the ambulance. And uh, I think it would be fair to say there was a fairly strained, minimal level of conversation in the back of the ambulance. Um, me sitting down relatively close to um, a paramedic um, who may even be listening to this podcast. I don't know. But um, I'm very grateful to uh, the, the paramedics who picked me up and uh, took me to where I needed to go. Um, but I, I think the, the reality is that uh, you do feel, as a patient, uh, a bit intimidated. Um, you feel isolated. Um, and certainly when I went into the isolation room in the hospital that I was taken to, um, I, you know, I was stuck there. I wasn't allowed out. Um, I hadn't actually been told uh, how to use the phone and how, how what number to ring. So there was a phone sitting there, but I didn't actually know who I should phone if I needed anything. So I was literally there in the in the room for an hour or so before anybody came in. Um, and uh, yeah, I do remember the, the two staff coming in to uh, take blood from me. And uh, I've, I felt for them actually, because it was quite difficult for them. They, their processes hadn't fully been set up at that particular point. And, and they had a number of PPE challenges and including how to doff safely and um, how to, you know, dispose of clinical healthcare waste safely as well while they were wearing their suits within my room. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I do remember um, a slightly surreal experience really um, because literally a, a week or so before I'd been the person on the other side wearing the suit taking the blood from the person who had query Ebola. And I remember the, there was a very senior clinician who is an extremely uh, good clinician, and he was, uh, he was taking blood from me, and I could see that he was shaking and he was nervous. And I think you need to recognize when you're a um, professional like this that you, you, you do have a degree of emotion, and obviously you, you know, you're a professional and you uh you compartmentalize things and you get on and do your job but nevertheless you're a human being and you need to remember that the person on the other side of the suit is also a human being and they're also going to have emotions and that is going to include being scared um being unsure of what's going to happen and you really do have a key role in in reassuring them and so the tone of your voice is important as well as the content of your communication um and it's so important to ensure that you really do try to uh, remember that the person in front of you is a human being who is feeling quite stressed and scared at that particular point. That's fascinating to hear from from both sides of the the, the PPE, as it were. Um, you the way that your experience differs and and i guess that that's probably really rallied home for you the the importance of like you said that that kind of humanity and the the human nature of the way that you speak and the the tone of voice and how all of that will impact your your patients and their their loved ones um i don't know if you've you've come across it at all but the the clinical human factors um group has um posted a, a 
a document, a kind of nine-point um, document that looks at, at non-technical skills during this COVID crisis. And what what they say is a lot of what what you've been saying. The the you know briefing the whole team, even if it's rapid and short, but having those those kind of clear roles and you know taking deliberate action. And they say lead lead by open and inclusive. Um, uh, means so um you know within your experience of of working within the ebola crisis and and preparing for for the covid um kind of surge that we we might see in the coming days or weeks um how are you finding the the leadership um is is changing or or, or is it staying very similar um what what kind of uh is your experience of of the the leadership challenges um that we might be facing the leadership challenges that we're facing. Uh, I think as a clinical leader, it's very important to be visible. Uh, we talk about management by walking around and in a crisis or a, you know, in this situation, a pandemic, it's really important that leaders are accessible, that they are visible and that they demonstrate humility and vulnerability. And by that, what I mean is that um, it's important that they demonstrate that they are human as well and that it's having an impact on them. Um, you know, so in my case, for example, um, I have, as many people will have, older relatives and my dad in particular is uh, in a care home um, and I'm unable to see him um, and uh, or my mother. Um, and... You know, I think it's important to to share that with the team so that they understand the pressures that you're under. And by demonstrating your vulnerability, you'll demonstrate your strength. Uh, linked to that, um, it's so important to be accessible and to be um, op- approachable because staff in these situations are going to have concerns. They're going to have concerns about their own health, about their family's health, about how they get to work. And that's before you get on to the technical side of things and healthcare. So as a leader, as a clinical leader, you need to demonstrate that you are visible, accessible, approachable, and that you've got a degree of humility and vulnerability. Um, and by doing that, you can also um, use that as a way, as a, as a stepping stone to being approachable to staff coming up with better ideas. So to give you an example where I work, we have uh, instituted a process called HORSE, H-O-R-S-E, which stands for Hands Off Rapid Senior Evaluation. And basically, it's about getting the patient to do their own observations, which reduces the amount of PPE use that's required. It vastly reduces the amount of time that is required. It enhances the patient's experience by facilitating, identifying whether they're well enough to go home or whether they need to have further uh, further review. And that has been created in conjunction with a second year student nurse, um, several of my uh, trainees, as well as uh, some of the secretarial and reception staff and uh, other clinical staff. So a real team effort. And I think that uh, one of the things that's been demonstrated to me this last month or so is the way that if you, the power of unleashing a clinical team 
to address an urgent challenge is absolutely phenomenal. And as a clinical leader, if you can engage the team to work together collaboratively to address that challenge, you will be amazed at what you can achieve. Absolutely. I think we are just going to see so much innovation and collaboration within teams. Um, you know, people working with clinicians from different areas of hospitals, working within the ambulance service, um, you know, the communication and the the, the challenges that are going to are going to be presented to us and the way that we you know innovate to overcome them as ambulance services as hospitals and is going to see so much positive development for our normal practice and I think like you said that that kind of modeling of humility and um, being open to suggestions is just going to be so important um, to to all of us um, Roger thank you so much for sharing your experience um, from the Ebola crisis and and your your current experience, and um, what would your your top tips be for uh, paramedics, ambulance service, or or hospital personnel that are, are dealing with with this COVID nineteen crisis, and how they can kind of manage their non technical skills, and how they can um, best uh, rise to this this coming challenge? My top tips. Okay, so my top tips would be do the basics brilliantly. So wash your hands properly. Don't touch your face. And wear proportionate PPE, recognizing that supply chains are going to be stretched. In terms of the clinical side of things, you need to predict and plan, not rush and react. And the third main thing would be to recognize that you and your colleagues are human and are not working in isolation. You're part of a bigger team and part of a big community. And you need to support all members of that team and community. And by doing that, we will win this war against COVID-19 because that's what it is. It's a war. But as you said, in war, healthcare innovation is driven forward. And that's ultimately what will happen here as well. And together, we will overcome COVID-19. Roger, thank you so much. Um, all of your your experiences and your your tips are going to be so helpful for for all paramedics and clinicians working pre-hospitally as well as in hospitally um i really appreciate you joining us on the college of paramedic podcast and um i hope that this won't be the last time that we uh hear from you thanks ben all the best thank you
Paramedic Insight podcast from the College of Paramedics.